today we are talking about Peter 55. I'm very excited because our team has been working on this uh, every single day, and yet it is still an endless source of conversations and wonder that comes out of it. And also, I think working in the Brussels, uh, my favorite part of the job is to, to be able to speak with competent colleagues uh, such as Peter and, and, and Megan. Uh, so we're happy to all welcome you for this. And uh, let's start uh, perhaps with quick introductions. Uh, first, uh, Megan. Uh, Megan uh, joined us uh, uh, last in October. October. In October. And uh, you, uh, besides being a senior advisor to Ruth Pedersen, you are also working in the German Marshall Fund, uh, contributing there as well. And uh, when uh, Megan uh, joined us, um, I ran into a person in, in Plux, actually, who told me that, well, if you have one hour conversation with Megan about energy policy, what else is there to know about energy policy? <laughs> I name an address. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, if you would uh, tell us a bit more about your background uh, for those who don't know you yet. Yes, well, it's very nice to be here. Of course, as you can imagine, when I was working in the commission, I worked a lot with Norway and the Norwegian companies. Norway is a really important energy partner for Europe, as you can imagine. So I have a science degree, I'm a lawyer, but I also have a master's in public administration. And I've worked uh, in various things, the UN, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, various other things. And then I spent about 27 years, apparently, in the European Commission working on research and innovation, uh, working on digital issues like digital governance, telecommunications, regulations, etc. And the last few years, I was the director of energy policy in DG Energy, and I covered international energy, the governance regulation, which requires member states to establish national energy and climate plans, and a whole series of other legal financial issues. And of course, Norway, as a member of the European Economic Area, also has to take into consideration EU legislation. So that was also an important part of my work. And then we also have Peter. Peter has been with us uh, since uh, quite early days. And besides being a senior advisor to Pedersen, you also are with the Florence School of Regulation. And Peter is one of the founding fathers or one of the main uh, architects behind the intrinsic emissions trading system. But that's not even the, that's not even scraping <laughs> your list of achievements. So will you also talk about? Well, hi, everybody. Um, I, I spent about 30 years in the European Commission. I, I would consider that I grew up there um, because I started as a trainee and I went through from lower grades, um, and I, at the end of my career, I was an advisor to uh, in the think tank uh, that the Commission has within it, actually. That's where I finished. And along the way, I worked in different departments of the Commission, uh, such as taxation, energy and transport, environment. Um, and I also worked in the offices of the commissioners. They have their staff uh, to themselves in cabinets, and I was both for the Energy Commissioner and for the Climate Action Commission, I was in the cabinet. So quite a varied uh, sort of career in the institutions. And since, I would say since Brexit, because it was material in my decision to leave the commission, um, in 2019, I joined Rod Peterson, uh, who'd been, well, James had been lobbying me before that. So uh, anyway, here I am. Uh, in 2019, we got a new commission uh, headed by uh, Ursula von der Leyen. And then about that time, um, it was born this new European Green Deal. And then, since then, we've been talking about the twin transition of uh, green and digital, and also this uh, finally named uh, climate package called Fit for 55. Uh, so maybe first, Megan, you can uh, talk about in human language, what are the different things and what is the impact on that on, on all of the 
your opinion. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's important. I'm, I'm a lawyer, as I told you, so it's important to start from first principles, go back to the basics. And it's not something that came out of nowhere. There was already established legislation. There was, even under the Juncker Commission, the Clean Energy for All Europeans package, which had raised the ambition for uh, improving energy efficiency, for improving the percentage of renewables, for establishing these national energy and climate uh, plans. So there was like a, a really good baseline of legislation for all EU member states to apply, and of course Norway and the other EEA countries to adapt and apply to. And uh, so I think when von der Leyen came into the Commission, and Peter, you will have an even better view of this because it relates also to the climate aspects, there was a real push to increase ambition even higher because that package under the Juncker Commission had raised the ambition to reduce carbon emissions to about 40%, about 40%. It wasn't ex exactly clear how much it was going to, in that range. Uh, and so she said, let's be even more ambitious. Let's raise our ambitions even higher. We can do better as a union, as a continent. Let's go to fit for 55, which was reducing carbon emissions to 55% by 2030. So that 2030 goal is important. And also the commission, before she had arrived, had established a communication on getting to net zero by 2050. So when you see these overall rates of energy mix or reduction, I think it's really important to remember these are not individual countries that each have to reach these percentages. So a percentage of oil or gas or nuclear or renewables. It's EU overall. And you'll see this in as we go along. So I think that's a really important element to keep in the back of your minds as well. Well, on the European Green Deal, I'd say I was frustrated that I left the Commission in end of September 2019, and no sooner had I gone than the Commission made the green agenda the primary defining characteristic of this five-year mandate of the European Commission. So in a sense, my timing couldn't have been worse because I'd spent the previous 20 years trying to do these things, but without getting that buy-in from the very top level. And that's what's changed. That's what is different about the European Green Deal. In the end, it's an action plan, like so many action plans, so many communications that the Commission produce. But this one is different because the President has made it one of her uh, major themes uh, against which she will be judged at the end of her five years. So, and, and this fact that uh, it's, it's really re-energizing the, ener the energy and climate agendas it is an increased ambition, which Megan has highlighted, um, and it's a real stretch target. So we're going to have to be extremely creative and committed to meet that target. Uh, and I think she knows that. Um, so for me, it's, it's materially different because we've got the support of the top level of the Commission in a way beyond the support that previous presidents have given this green mm -hmm. agenda. That would be my take on it. Yeah. And, and can, I, can I just add something to what you said? That is that it is not just climate and energy. If you look at True. the slide, you will see it covers all sorts of things. It covers industry, it covers agriculture, it covers oceans. 
And so it really is sort of bringing all the strands together, isn't it? And yeah. another element that I think is really important, since I also did a lot of research work in the past, is what is known as regulatory pull. Mm -hmm. So if you have high ambitions and you have <coughs> uh, set targets at high rates, you will, in theory, have a lot of innovation and research and industry and consumers and governments. Everyone will work together to try to meet those targets. Why? Because they're regulatory, they're le legislative, and you have to meet them. So this also pulls a lot of action from below, let's call it. It's not just the governments that are involved. And so with the Green Deal, as you mentioned, exactly the, the political target was, was set there. And this is very important for Rwandalion and this commission to go through with it. And then a year, um, almost about a year ago, we had the Fit for 55 package. So uh, uh, about 14 uh, legislative proposals that are now trying to trickle down and mainstream that change through different sectors. Um, and it's been about a year. So what have we seen so far? Do I go first go this ahead, time? Um, I, I would say that a year on, everyone's more familiar with the proposals that have been made. There were 14 that were made last July. And since then, there have been a number more and they're even they're still being made so it's a sort of it's an agenda that's ongoing but the first year has been spent uh, with the two institutions that decide on those laws they've been talking internally the parliament has been discussing within it what its position should be with respect to all of these individual proposals and the council where member states are represented has been doing the same what has got to happen next? So in essentially, they've been talking to each other in, inside. They've been talking internally. What's got to happen next is that these two institutions have to meet and negotiate together and find compromises. Um, so that's, to some extent, uh, we are really nearer the beginning than the end. That's how I would put it. And that might be a bit pessimistic because people think, oh, it's gone really quickly. It's going to carry on being quick. Well, to some extent, there's some really difficult negotiations ahead. Um, and the second half of this five-year mandate that Ursula von der Leyen has got with her commissioners is going to be tough. It's going to be really contentious because trade-offs will have to be made. Some constituencies will have to be disappointed. That's never easy. You know, all the applause will have died down because that's what they were able to get the first half of the mandate, announcing big ideas. That's great. But now it's going to be a little bit less glamorous, I think, and uh, many people will be there selling out or whatever. But, you know, that's normal yeah, policy making. Uh, I, I, I agree, but I just disagree, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I think times are different now. Uh, in all the previous cases, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, let's say, energy prices have been relatively stable. We haven't had huge increases. Of, they vary, of course, as, as the market works. But I think since post-COVID, we have had a huge increase in energy prices, as you all know. Not just natural gas, but also oil and coal, and as a result, also electricity prices. So there is a huge initiative and, and uh, uh, desire also on the part of member states, whereas before they were pulled kicking and screaming, some of them in particular, to meet these targets. Now they have an added reason and justification and need to meet these targets. The energy union, which is also reflected to a certain extent in the Green Deal, the first priority is energy security and making sure that Europe has adequate energy security. Why did it not work? Because the European Commission 
or the parliament didn't have the ability to go and say, you member state have to stop importing Russian oil. Why? <laughs> because the treaty says every member state has the right to have its own energy mix. Of course, it has to meet the regulatory framework of the European Union, so it has to meet certain requirements. But again, the new rules are at EU level. So you could have a country, country X, that was using 80% oil because that was offset by someone else who was using entirely renewable energy. And at the EU level, you would meet those. So I, I think that, you know, I think it was Clinton who used to say it's the economy stupid. I think that prices and market conditions will be an extra impetus. You don't agree. I'm more skeptical that it's going to be easy. Um, I, I think not everybody buys into the Green Deal agenda. I'll be blunt. Um, we can already see the signs of this happening in the Parliament where some of the car, the standards, the CO2 standards for cars, that proposal is being watered down. Um, I think there are other instances, the emissions trading system, it was going to be extended to buildings and transport, road transport. Um, again, that is being watered down. So I think actually what's happening is, is rather typical of what the legislative process, what happens during a legislative process is there is a watering down. And the worry is that there will be a shortfall in the instruments we're going to need to get to those high levels of ambition that we still subscribe to. So how are we going to do it? So I, I'm, I'm concerned for that. Yes, there are some reinforcing factors, and I think obviously um, the, the circumstances now uh, with invasion of Ukraine by Russia is definitely changing the uh, situation a bit. But I see a temptation to weaken, um, and I think the Commission is resolved to stand firm, but in the end the decisions made by Parliament and Council together, um, but you know, we'll have to see. I think it's going to be a very interesting remainder of the mandate of two and a half years. We will, of course, come very shortly to talk about the, the current uh, Russian-Ukraine crisis and so on, but just and the next steps. But just to have a, still a look back on the on the year that has happened. So our team has been uh, letting know our, our clients all the time these little whispers that we've been hearing, where the different files are going, and we report them back to to clients in different offices. So what do those whispers have? have meant, like the, the fact that, as you say, like on CO2 for cars, there was so much conversation going on. I mean, you already alluded to it, but just to make it like clear um, for, for clients, like what has been the progress so far, or where are we exactly standing? Well, I do think that the institutions have, as I said, been negotiating with themselves, um, and the parliament is about to adopt its, its in plenary, its negotiating position, um, and the council is essentially doing the same thing. What's important, we, we report every move that happens in Brussels because, in fact, at different stages of the process, you can, there are, there's a possibility to influence, to be more ambitious or to take account of special interests. And that's the sort of thing that the Brussels machine works on. Um, so there have been plenty of opportunities uh, for us to inform our clients some of whom have been tearing their hairs out with frustration, uh, others, you know, with a joy, whatever. But it's it's highly complex because I don't think ever before Brussels has seen in the green agenda anything as vast as as complex mm. as what we're doing now. Just that list of proposals there is just the headline instruments. 
um, but there is something for all, for all sectors. Um, and we have to finance it. So it's got to be paid for. It's got to be paid for. So industry is going to have to pay, consumers are going to have to pay, government is going to have to pay. All the money has to be yeah. to support it all. So There's been a lot of touting to around town that somehow the green agenda is going to create jobs and growth, but it also requires huge investment. And there's a lot of talk about investment, and there's means of making investments, such as has been done after the COVID um, economic crisis, because it did, it was a health crisis, a tragic one, but it also had a major economic impact. So after that, uh, the Commission proposed the Resilience and, and Recovery and Resilience Fund facility. Um, Get what it's called, but it's a lot of money and it's borrowed money, but it's being spent in, in very substantial amounts in the member states because there's a recognition that huge investments are needed. But 30% of those are supposed to go into. And yes, yeah, 36% of that money is earmarked, one third, I earmarked say, and, and there's an earmarking for digital as well, which reflects yeah. the priorities of this uh, president and of the commission. Yeah. And I think that's, that's telling that out of a crisis, a health crisis, uh, rather than being told to back off and just wait with your green agenda, your environmental agenda, until we can, until we get back on the road and sort of start growing economically again, we're actually now talking about rebooting the economy with a new, with the purpose of the environment at the forefront of our minds, or the purpose of energy independence at the forefront of our mind. Now, those are different reflexes from when I was the chief of staff to the mm -hmm. climate commissioner 10 years ago when there was the Lehman Brothers uh, financial crisis that for, for Europe was an economic crisis more generally. The thinking then was, this is getting tough. Now, look, Peter, you just take, it, take a break. Go have a smoke. <laughs> because I was leading, if you like, the green agenda charge uh, amongst the heads of cabinet. Um, and now it's a different discourse. I was indignant at the time that I was being told to hold and wait and just let the system reboot as before. We're not looking at rebooting as before, just carrying on as business as usual. This agenda is about transforming the agenda, transforming our industries, our transport systems, our energy systems. Uh, and this doesn't come without cost. Um, and of course, that's what the investment and the money side of it is all about. Yeah, but it's the future that's yes, at stake, isn't it? And it is. So I think it everyone is. agrees on that. It's a question of who's going to do it and who's going to pay. And it's, it's all, everyone agrees as long as it doesn't come from their pocket. I think. The great news <laughs> is there are a few instruments like the emissions trading system, which Indeed. actually makes Make, polluters pay. Yeah, and those exactly. revenues from auctioning, which last year amounted to three, 31 billion euros, that's mostly money that goes to the member states and can be used for precisely the purpose Indeed. of helping both industry invest, but also uh, address the social impacts of the transition, which indeed are acutely felt by, in some places, uh, some the energy poor people. Absolutely, um, no question about that. And the tax system has to work as well. But the ETS fund is really a drop in the bucket. I'm sorry to say, it's not that I disagree with you, I absolutely think it's an excellent idea, but the amount required for this transformation is what, one point something trillion, 1.5, I've always True. forget the number. True. So it's a huge amount, and so this is a very important element, but 
everything has to come. Okay, but there's still 31 billion euros, which is a big drop, if you say. I would say. And, and a lot of our clients are also looking towards EU uh, funding and to, to receive it themselves, as, as is everybody. Yeah. And you mentioned the recovery uh, fund. That was a big, you know, you're really coming together and, and making this fund. And it was a big one off. And now that we get to the crisis situation, then again, we are we are taking some of that recovery fund to to uh, divert it to the even more ambitious uh, uh, targets that have been announced that's because of the ongoing situation. While at the same time, of course, the citizens all over Europe have been struggling with high energy prices. And so at first, uh, when we talk about the, the retail EU and of course the geopolitical situation, uh, but the first commission came up with this, it was supposed to be a plan to tackle the high energy uh, prices. And that was supposed to be the second part of it. And then because of the war, the, the whole plan got redone basically in the last week or two. So uh, shall we talk about a bit about the Repower EU, what does it mean and, and, and what, what is it changing for the Green Agenda and the Fit for 55? Yeah, well, I think, um, first of all, it's pushed even further this impetus that was already there because of high prices. The invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, which is a disaster for everyone, is a particular disaster for the countries that import Russian oil, gas, coal. You've seen that the sanctions have been agreed in packages, uh, including uh, reduction and exclusion of imports of coal, which has already been agreed. Of course, that's all going to be phased in. You may have followed the discussions about sanctions on Russian oil, which were very painful and took a long time. And of course, again, there are countries, again, each country has its own energy mix and its own energy problems uh, and advantages as well. But this is how the agreement was reached, that some will be able to phase this in over time. Uh, Hungary, you've heard about, I'm sure, will have an exemption for pipeline oil. So all these things are going to be uh, brought into uh, existence over the next uh, months. But the other thing that's very interesting, I think, about the Repower EU plan is that there is an even greater ambition to the targets for energy efficiency, which were supposed to be 9%, improvement on energy efficiency now proposed to be 13%, an increase of the renewable energy target from 40% to 45%, which I think is also quite possible. Again, by 2030, these are the estimates. So these existing legislation that was being discussed already between the Parliament and the Council is being pushed even further by uh, the Commission to, to come to even higher rates. Of course, greater emphasis on hydrogen and clean hydrogen in particular, making sure that we have better storage, which is an absolutely essential uh, element to increasing the renewable energy limits, better relations with uh, non-EU countries. Norway, of course, is an important one. Um, and so there's a whole series of issues putting uh, solar panels on rooftops, uh, uh, increasing offshore wind, uh, encouraging consumers to take um, uh, heat pumps, electric heat pumps and other heat pumps. And I think a really important element here too is the improvement of energy efficiency, which consumers can feel the crunch now and will have greater incentive to take on some of these energy uh, efficiency plans, which they were not particularly good at before. And one last element, which is one of my pet peeves, is the subsidization of fossil fuels, which has 
really is, is shameful. <laughs> uh, and I hope that this will finally stop. Uh, it does continue to a certain extent and where it should for very poor people, energy poor people and people who don't have any other source. Of course, there are government programs and government uh, uh, mechanisms to help them. But this is an area of taxation where energy taxation can really help to adjust the market and make sure these uh, sources are used properly. Peter, if I, if I may add, uh, Megan just now listed all the main measures of the Repower EU. But when we also look at the plan for this year, which is to, to really uh, get um, and to reduce the dependence on Russian gas by two thirds <laughs> within this year, we saw earlier this year uh, the International Energy Agency came out with their plan to reduce one third. The Commission went ahead and said two thirds. What do you think about the feasibility of, of this plan and, and what will it mean going forward? Well, I think the Ukraine crisis, if I can call it that, uh, the war in Ukraine, is, is also a danger for the green agenda. And we're seeing the signs of that through the worry about high energy prices, which are happening exacerbated by this conflict. What we can see the government's doing, I was filling up my car in France the other uh, yesterday last week with and electricity, it, it was <laughs> it was an old liquid fuel and it said on the pump your prices are being subsidized 15 cents per liter of diesel um, by the French government that was before the election no, no they well that was last week yeah, yeah but they've changed, they've changed their but mind but for really me changing. I was saying I don't need that subsidy and I take issue um, at the fact that a lot of these measures to attenuate the increase of energy prices are being given economy-wide and that means the majority of the benefit goes to the richer households who spend more you know I was on holiday so this is where the, the fossil fuel subsidies that we're using in the crisis are being misused um, because money is being wasted and I think there's going to be a dawning when governments realize that the measures they're taking to uh, please the population as a whole are just too expensive. They should be targeted because they might have to continue these for three years or so. I don't know how long this conflict's going to carry on. And even if it finished tomorrow, I don't know when the embargo or the sanctions would end. So we're seeing bad signals as well. We're seeing some member states cautioning against being too ambitious on emissions trading because the carbon price feeds through into electricity prices. So we shouldn't be too, you know, demanding. These are the seeds of a of, of further weakening. So it's not a it's not a easy uh, debate right now. It's possibly getting harder. But I think we've got to remember the doubling down is what we've seen the Commission do. I've seen the Commission increase renewable energy targets, but I worry, having worked on the 2020 renewable energy targets, which by the way were 20% of our energy would be renewable by 2020, for 2030 the Commission's now proposing 45%. 45%. That is a 15% increase in 10 years, and there's only about eight of those years left. Seven and, and a half. Incredibly high ambition, and setting the target is all very well, but our the tools being put in place to enable producers of energy or the energy companies to meet those targets. I'm not so sure. So I'm worried 
This is extremely ambitious. This calls for a kind of, I would say, a wartime effort. And we are in times of war. And I sense there isn't, um, there isn't that wide understanding that this is big, this is transformational. A lot of young people get it because they can see their environment being trashed by older generations. What do they call us? Uh, boomers, boomers. No, <laughs> boomers, old white men, whatever. But there's a word for it. And, and what they're saying in, those, uh, in the boomer term is, you know, we've, we're trashing the planet and we're taking all the pension funds and start spending them happily. Uh, and, and we're not looking ahead. And I think Ursula von der Leyen, I don't know whether it's anything to do with the fact that she's got seven kids, seven kids maybe. <laughs> and she wants to be on the right side of history. And I think anyone with or without children can think, is what I'm going to do in my career going to put me on the right side of history? Um, I do teach also at a university and a lot of the young people, they want to do something useful. And they don't mean to earn lots of money. They just want to, you know, do something that's empowering and inspiring. But Peter, everyone can do that. Even old people can buy an electric car, can put solar panels on their houses, can put I a heat pump would. in their house. But they're the ones who have pensions, who have income, who have benefited from all that. This is where I think we should really push so and have a public uh, campaign to make sure that people who have the means do this and that companies do it as well. Many of them are doing it because they recognize how expensive it is to keep paying these high prices, whereas they can put solar panels on the roof of their factory, generate lots of uh, solar mm. uh, electricity. They need the storage, of course. Well, and even in Belgium, you can use solar panels, believe it or not. Works. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm a tax man. The first DG I worked in was DG Taxation. I did work in the UK in the tax uh, department. And I do believe in the power of pricing to change behavior. That's why I'm such a big advocate of the polluter pays principle. Whether it be a carbon tax, which you've got in Norway, and it is a disincentive to pollute, or an emissions trading system, um, these, are, these change behavior. Yeah, absolutely. But if you remember five, six years ago, the carbon price in Norway was about 60 euros per ton. In Europe, and you know this very well because you're an ETS man, it was four euros per ton. The advantage is that over the last five, six, seven, let's say 10 years, the price has now gone up. You probably know it exactly. Is it close to 70 euros? 80, nearer near so 80. So this makes creating and generating uh, carbon yep. a, a great disincentive and it works very well. So, right, but the logic of it would be to extend the emissions trading system and the price pricing signal it gives to sectors of the economy that are not decarbonizing hard enough, which includes transport and which includes buildings. The Commission has proposed this and there's now pushback. Exactly. Quite simply, there's pushback, big pushback, from political groups in the European Parliament and from member states. So, you know, the question is well, if we don't use that as a tool, what is it? Are the member states ready to step up and introduce national taxes or national polluter pays pricing? I'm not sure that they want to do that either. And this is where it all boils down to the fact that unless we are ambitious and put the instruments in place, we're going to have nice targets which are going to look good for two or three years until we can see we're going to miss them.
because in the end you know this uh, climate change debate it often hangs around trying to limit the global average temperature to an increase of two degrees centigrade by the end of this century and everyone's still believes we can do it at least there's even a more ambitious target of 1. trying to 5. limit 1.5 degrees centigrade again the politicians don't want to admit yet that we're probably going to miss that and we're probably going to overshoot 1.5 by a long way we might overshoot two degrees centigrade by a long way and Europe alone whatever we do are not going to stop those temperature rises because it's largely the emerging economies that are contributing but what Europe can do and we, are, we can afford to do is to put in place a mix of policies that are effective in addressing climate change and that there can be learning from that policy mix in other jurisdictions and I think we can see that beginning to happen uh, but there needs to be much more of it because we alone are not going to manage this to, to solve climate change on our own so we've got to be generous in our policy ideas and financing comes back to money. And member states are not obliged to limit themselves to the targets that are established in the legislation. True. They can all go far beyond. One of the problems that many, many uh, uh, renewable energy uh, companies talk about is the problem of permitting, to get permits in order to establish their offshore wind or their onshore wind or to get a solar farm. I, I won't even start on my own personal problem trying to get solar panels on a house somewhere. It's extraordinary. But this is something that governments, even local governments, can take an action to do. Nothing says, you know, you, you, you're not allowed to do more solar, you're not allowed to do more. Of course you are. Everyone should be pushing their, even their local councils to do, to do more. And, uh, and that's the thing that permitting is actually a national competence. But now we see that the EU really understands if we want to go where we want to go with renewables, they need to push for some kind of uh, common action. And, and uh, I would like to pick up something that Peter, you were already mentioning, which is kind of the dissonance between what we're perceived sometimes between the Commission and what we do here in the EU and then what we do in the member states, since uh, I hope our colleagues from all across the offices have, have logged in. And uh, especially we're talking about uh, the Renewable Energy Directive and that we have now uh, pushed the target even higher. So yeah. the Repower EU proposed 45% instead of 40, which yeah. is already ambitious. And uh, our team has just seen that the uh, latest um, compromise text from the French presidency in the council, where the countries are, are discussing this, uh, <clears throat> the compromise amendment came after the Repower EU, and yet it doesn't have the higher target in it. <laughs> so uh, what do we think about the, the, the member states and uh, member state angle of it, and how will it go forward from, from now on? Okay, well, Megan, you go first. Well, I'll give a, a quick comment before you go into the details, and that is, and I'm going to be very undiplomatic now, the European Parliament makes wonderful proposals, usually. They have high ambitions. They go beyond what everyone would even think possible. The Commission, when it makes its proposal, has to take into consideration the fact that the Parliament, gen I'm, I'm making a gross generalization now, will want to go up. The member states will all say, we have to pay for it, it's difficult, we have to do that. We don't want to go so far. So the Commission usually comes somewhere in between. The Parliament usually pushes higher. The Parliament doesn't have to implement any of this legislation. It doesn't have to pay for any of this legislation. It comes down to the member states that have to pay for this. That's the way it works. So 
you have these conflicts between the two of trying to find something that's in between that everyone can agree to and implement. Sure. So that's the, that's the basic problem. It's yeah. not the problem. It's the basic uh, environment in but wouldn't EU you legislation. Agree, wouldn't you agree, Megan, that the Commission, where we've both worked, mm -hmm. knows that's going to be the absolutely. case? Absolutely. And that's is absolutely. going to be trying to forge pragmatic compromises. Indeed. That listen a little bit absolutely. to both camps. Yeah, yeah. And um, usually that's what the Commission proposals are. They have an estimate of how far they can go by pushing the member states and how far they can what's the highest target they can possibly get away with, which is again, usually, except in this case, but usually uh, on the basis of a full economic analysis and full impact assessment, etc. So there's been a lot of uh, ec econometric uh, work that's gone behind. That's it. And actually, to open up the floor uh, to questions, uh, my last one is, so the companies who have not been involved or the consultants who have not yet uh, gotten their clients involved in, in the Fit for 55, um, is it over? <laughs> is it, what, what, what is there still to do? Where are the opportunities uh, still out there in this package? Is it, too late? In this package, is it too late? It's never too late. It's never too late. I would say the same. But um, we're, we're going to, I would predict that we'll be talking about this package this time next year. You know, it, it, we've got, this has still got some time to run, and I think rather more time than people generally think. I think every day something in the process is postponed till after the summer now. That's what's happening, is things that were going to be done in July are being done in September, and you know. Um, so it, it, it's certainly got some time to run, um, but I am absolutely confident that the Commission will do everything it can, and indeed the Parliament will do everything it can before the end of this mandate, so in 2024, they want to go back to the, uh, in the case of the parliamentarians for the European elections, mm -hmm. and in the case of the commission, they're running for reappointment. They're looking to having achieved this European Green Deal and to be judged by that. Now, they won't be judged on performance, they'll be judged on the plan, which are being made <laughs> in all of these legislative proposals, but it will be done. So there's an awful lot of things to do in the next two and a half years, uh, primary legislation that's decided, and a lot of the more technical stuff, the what we call implementing legislation, um, which is often decided through more complex, less transparent processes that we have a word for, called comitology. You know, it's an obscure word, and it, it tells you that it's an obscure process that's going on. So there's a lot to play for still, um, but in my view, this is. Uh, you know, it's it's a defining moment these two and a half years, uh, because von der Leyen will want to be probably running a second term. She'll need the support of the Greens uh, probably, or she didn't necessarily, but it would be <coughs> ironic if at the end of the mandate, uh, the Green constituents in the Parliament, who've never had a European Commission uh, president so open to their agenda, um, it would be ironic if she got the thumbs down from that constituency. I would think rather we should be, you know, in awe of the fact that she's sticking her neck out mm. further than any previous president has done. Rightly so, because we have to make these changes. So. Yeah, and I think that's one of the differences with um, the COVID crisis as, as a real tragedy, as I say, it's impacted many people in, in tragic ways. 
um, but it will be over one day. On the climate front, we hope too one day it'll be history that there was a climate crisis and we addressed it effectively and we avoided the worst. But I'm not sure about that. In any case, there's a generation of more work ahead of us globally to actually, uh, you know, to reduce emissions to a level that are safe. Yeah. Uh, and it, beyond the EU as well. Uh, right? Far That's beyond the EU. Far beyond, far beyond the EU. But I mean, just look at the importance that Germany has done in its energy event. It's scaled up renewables, and by doing so, the costs have come down. And now in India, it's the cheapest energy is the solar energy that they can deploy and have absolutely amazing returns on because of the sunshine they get and so on. So somehow that's an example of where a country in Europe has stuck its neck out, put a lot of money up front, and the benefits are being harvested globally. Let's do that as a mm -hmm. continent, you know, and in the next few years. Thank you so much to both of you. Uh, and uh, I'll also say to the people online that uh, we work on this on every day and if you have any questions just send your emails our way and uh, we can continue this conversation offline. Thank you everybody for, for joining.